This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Monday, April 19th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. We've got a bit of an unusual but very cool show for you today. You may have heard about a bit of a shakeup in the world of soccer today with a dozen of the world's biggest teams forming what they're calling the Super League. To help explain what the heck is going on, we are joined today by Tech Meme Ride Home host Brian McCullough, who shares the context, the consequences, and how this affects way more than just the world of soccer or even just sports. That is in the second half of today's extra long show. But first, NASA has officially flown a helicopter on Mars. Why is it such a big deal? And Pizzly Bears, grizzly and polar bear hybrids that are apparently growing in number due to the climate crisis. Here are some of the cool things. Early this morning, the Ingenuity helicopter successfully took flight on Mars, making it the first aircraft to make a powered flight on another planet. The test flight consisted of the craft flying 10 feet off the surface of Mars' Jezero crater for 39 seconds, which may not sound like very much, but the Wright brothers' first batch of powered flights in December of 1903 were all about the same altitude and lasted for less than a minute. So, all things considered, for a first historic test flight, it's pretty solid. And as a nod to those pioneers, NASA has named Ingenuity's flight zone the Wright Brothers Field. And Ingenuity itself is even decorated with a small piece of wing fabric from one of the Wright Brothers' first planes. The small four-pound helicopter, which arrived on Mars as part of the Perseverance rover back in February, had to spin its twin rotor blades five times as fast as helicopters on Earth, due in part to the ultra-thin atmosphere on Mars. Now, you may have heard about the test flight being delayed over the past week, with all of Ingenuity's flight software actually having to be re-uploaded. Speaking to New York Magazine's intelligencer, Bobby Braun, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Director of Planetary Science, explained, quote, Anytime you do something for the first time, particularly at a place like Mars, you're going to encounter unknowns. We had a series of checkout tests that we were planning to do to get it ready for its first flight attempt, and on April 9th, we didn't pass one of those checkout tests. And what happened is the computers that control its flight didn't boot up at the right time relative to the rest of the system. Because Ingenuity is autonomous, when the timing is off, it knows something is wrong. To keep itself safe, it automatically shuts down, goes to sleep, and waits for commands from Earth for the next day. That takes some time, because you've got to send in the commands, and Ingenuity's got to receive those commands. The commands actually go to the Mars orbiters, which send the instructions down to the Perseverance rover, which transmits the instructions to the helicopter base station on the rover, and then the helicopter base station sends the commands to Ingenuity. All of that takes time. So every time we do a test or an update of anything on Mars, it takes us about a day to do so. End quote. And it's a comparatively tiny glitch compared to the scale of this project. Braun also explained some of the larger challenges of achieving this feat. For one, there's that ultra-thin atmosphere, about one hundredth as thick as here on Earth, which means the craft has to be super lightweight. And then there's the fact that you're controlling it from another planet. 
It has to be launched on Earth, survive the trip through space to Mars, including the super low temperatures on the red planet, and once it's there, communicating with it, as Braun explained with the software, is tough. Since it takes about 14 minutes for a radio signal to go between the planets, the craft had to be autonomous. Quoting Braun again, In other words, we tell it, okay, tomorrow you're going to fly and you're going to go up 10 feet and maybe you're going to go off to the left or to the right, you're going to go downrange and come back and land. We just tell it what it's going to do and then it wakes up on its own and executes all of those commands autonomously. It has onboard cameras and other navigation instruments so that it can fly kind of like a pilot flies. End quote. Now, part of why this accomplishment is such a big deal, apart from the sheer scientific feat, is because there are many parts of Mars and other planets and moons that rovers, as they exist in their grounded capacity now, simply cannot explore on their own. Cliffs, steep mountains, or crater walls, rotorcraft flying around like drones will be able to see and access so much more. And future helicopter missions throughout the galaxy aren't just theoretical. The Dragonfly mission to Saturn's icy planet Titan will be a rotorcraft in and of itself, instead of a rotorcraft hitching a ride on a rover like Ingenuity and Perseverance. Dragonfly is expected to launch in 2026 and land in 2034, when it will explore all over the moon looking for prebiotic chemical processes common to both Earth and Titan, which itself is very similar to early Earth. But you don't have to wait for 2026 to see more space flights. Future Ingenuity flights are already planned, with the next one hopefully happening on Thursday the 22nd. None of Ingenuity's flights will be quite as ambitious as Dragonflies, however. It can only fly 160 feet away from Perseverance, and only for 90 seconds. But as a proof of concept that we can fly aircraft on other planets, Ingenuity has more than succeeded. As acting NASA Administrator Steve Jersick said, quote, We don't know exactly where Ingenuity will lead us, but today's results indicate the sky, at least on Mars, may not be the limit. End quote. Alright, so there's a post making the rounds online that you might have seen. It shows a light brown colored bear sitting on some green grass and looking almost morosely off to the side. The accompanying caption that is being spread with the photo reads, Climate crisis pushing polar bears to mate with grizzlies, producing hybrid pizzly bears. Is this just a naturally light-colored bear or some sort of Photoshop creation? Or are pizzly bears actually real? It turns out, yes, yes, they are real, but their existence isn't new. And it's not always completely caused by the climate crisis. And, of course, pizzly isn't their official name. The hybrid animal doesn't really have an official name, although some do also call them growler bears, which I like. According to Snopes, the first growler bear sighting happened back in 2006. The discovery sadly began with the death of one of these bears at the hands of hunters in Canada, but DNA testing of the bear was able to confirm that it was a genuine hybrid, something people had speculated was a possibility for a long time, but never been able to confirm in the wild until that point. And the key there is in the wild, because two years previously, in 2004, a pair of cubs had been born in a zoo in Germany who were half grizzly bear and half polar bear. 
Tips and Taps parents, a European brown bear named Susie and a polar bear named Elvis, had shared an enclosure for decades. Their procreation wasn't intended, but, you know, maybe should have been expected in some way. But when it happens in the wild, the onus does seem to fall on the climate crisis, as these two types of bears don't usually inhabit the same environments. Reporting on Pisleys in 2016, the Washington Post wrote, quote, Polar bears are marine mammals. Grizzlies are terrestrial. But as the Arctic warms, sea ice is shrinking, and the tundra is expanding, and the bears' disparate populations are meeting, mating, and creating a new breed that's capable of reproducing. Bears sharing both species' DNA have been recorded several times over the past decade. So why are these two species linking up? It's called flexible mate choice. The bears are mating with the best possible partners as opposed to not mating at all, and they're mating because they share relatively close territories and the same branches of the same evolutionary tree. Interspecies mixing between the two happened thousands of years ago, thanks to the advance and retreat of glaciers, and of late, it has been boosted by climate change. Scientists say it's also probably been assisted by policies that protect both bears from culling and hunting, affording further opportunities for mingling. The crossbreeds found in Alaska and Canada are not genetic anomalies. Scientists have found the mix in the islands off southeast Alaska where bears resemble grizzlies but contain polar bear DNA. That indicates decades of sporadic interbreeding, says Stephen Amstrup, chief scientist at Polar Bears International. End quote. And one reason pizzly bears may be getting a boost in attention recently is because of a new research paper that was published at the start of the month in the journal Global Change Biology. Paleontologist and associate professor of biological sciences Larissa DeSantis examined the changing diets of polar bears as the Arctic warms and says we will likely see more hybrids as grizzly bears move north for cooler weather. Meanwhile, polar bears are losing many of their hunting opportunities and struggling to adapt to the different types of foods they have to eat. So the mating that occurs as grizzlies move onto their territory and become competitors is opportunistic. We may see more and more pizzly bears as time goes on, but we will sadly continue to see less and less polar bears in their own right as the climate crisis continues. So today we found out that 12 of the world's biggest soccer teams have announced their plans to form something called the Super League, a closed competition just for the 12 of them. This is in contrast to existing leagues, which are comprised of many more teams and often a mixture of smaller and larger towns represented, and which work on a roughly merit-based system where teams can get relegated at the end of each season. And this point is usually something that's a bit strange to Americans who are used to the NFL and the NBA, where it's just always the same teams every season. But to the rest of the world, and any soccer fans, the risk of relegation is a cornerstone of the competition. So this Super League is being seen by many as undermining the spirit of the game. And we do have some analogs in American sports, you know, like NCAA basketball. Compare this to if Duke, North Carolina, and a few others didn't have to qualify for March Madness anymore. They just got in every year, no matter how good or bad they were. This is a little bit like this, but also so much more. And so to help explain it all and offer his insight is Tech Meme Ride Home host and diehard Arsenal fan, Brian McCullough. Jack, I'm glad that you actually... <laughs> reached out because all morning long I've been seeing media types on Twitter be like 
I don't understand what's going on, like American media types. And I've been sitting there like eating my heart out, being like, oh God, I, I could explain it to all of you in, in, in 10 minutes. So this is my this is my attempt to do that. So. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Th- this is this is your chance. This is your platform. Well, I, so yeah, thank thanks for coming on to explain <laughs> it to us. So for anyone listening, like especially people who maybe don't follow international soccer, I mean, can you right. just explain what yes. is happening? That's well, uh, let's let's get a couple things basic. I'm going to call it football, not because I'm being snobbish about it, but that's just what I'm used to calling it now. But we are talking about soccer. And we're talking about it, the, the whole international game, because it is international. Like we're talking about um, specifically Europe right now. But, you know, um, the other thing that you have to understand is the way football functions, especially in Europe, is it's a it's a tiered system. So in any country, you can have League One, League Two, League Three, League Four. Underneath that, you have, you know, um, semi-pro or completely non-pro teams. And you you have what's pro- called promotion and relegation. So you can be a completely amateur team, but if you keep winning, you can go up the football pyramid, right? And the same thing in reverse. Um, you can have huge teams. Leeds United is, a, you know, I think they won the European uh, Championship in the 70s. They're by far, if you had to name the biggest 10 teams in England, Leeds is one of them. They just got back into the Premier League this year. They've been down in, in League One, and I think they fell as far as League Two for uh, the better part of a decade and a half. Um, you have teams like Nottingham Forest, which I think was the first uh, English team to win the European Championship. They haven't been at the top of the, the English game for a long, long time. So the concept that's key to understand is that whereas with like the NBA or the NFL, where these are closed leagues, it doesn't function that way um, in, in football. It, and 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 for, for good and bad, but I, I'd say mostly good because, you know, if if all you, in, in the in the in in US sports you tend to have playoffs so even if you don't win there's still excitement to a season because a certain number of teams can still be playoff eligible and go into the playoffs and maybe go on a run even if you had a mediocre season the way it functions in european football is kind of similar to that without the playoff system because you know, the top four teams say in england qualify for the champions league because you have all of these national leagues and then at the very top, you have the Champions League and the Europa League, which is where all the top teams from all of the countries play each other in these tournaments. So in any given season, like Man City is going to walk away with the English uh, Premier League this year. Um, but there's still all of this jockeying. There's about seven or eight teams that are jockeying for those three remaining Champions League positions. And then below that, there are two Europa League positions. So you can have the entire top half of your league still competing to go into Europe. And at the bottom of the league, you have three teams that will be relegated down to what's called the championship in in the, the English league, for example, which means you you're out of the Premier League, you're out of the top flight, you're out of all the money that that entails. A lot of times your players have written into their contracts, if we get relegated, you have to sell me on because I will not play for any team that's not in the top tier, right? So in any given season, there's tons of drama all around the top and the bottom. That's kind of the brilliant part about it. There are seasons where most of the excitement at the tail end of the season is who's going to maybe escape relegation. Um, is this big team going to finally go down? A perfect example of that is there's a huge team called Newcastle United. That's one of the. I biggest... was going to say, yeah, Newcastle is always almost out, and a few years was a few years well, ago they, they were. They are they're, they become one of those quintessential teams that bounces up and down. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're in for a couple of years, they're out for a couple of years, they come back. And I think it's Norwich that just got um, promoted again. Uh, they they fell out last year, and now they're coming back 
uh, next year because they, they won the championship already on points. Anyway, so that is the background for structurally what's going on. The What's financially and strategically going on, there's a long-term trend and a short recent trend. The long-term trend is we know for all of global sports, sports has become huge business and it's become international. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the beautiful things about soccer is you can be a Man United fan, be in Jakarta, get in and the cab driver is wearing a, a Man United jersey and he watches every game religiously. And you can, you know, you you can go to Mumbai, you can go to Nigeria and and like the biggest event of the week will be people crowding around their TV screens, um, you know, watching the latest uh, Champions League game and things like that. So in essence, in the same way that like, you know, NBA has gotten um, a, a global sport and, and so international fandom is, is increasingly important to them. In the same way that um, Hollywood now values the international box office almost more than they care about the US box office, a similar thing is happening in sports and especially in football. Man United makes more money from their international like branding and sponsorship deals than they do from playing the actual sport. So mm-hmm. all that really matters to Man United is maintaining their brand, like as it, in the eyes of the global sporting public. And so it helps also to win to maintain that brand, but it's increasingly not necessary. <laughs> um, and so that's the long-term trend is that it no longer really matters to some of these teams, their, their local leagues, their national leagues, their local rivalries. Um, it, it's more important to keep that global brand flag flying than, than anything else. You add to that the fact that the way deals are structured, again, this is common across all of sports, like the biggest money is in these TV rights. Well, if you're in the English Premier League, or a better example would be, well, I don't know that this works for Spain, but let's use the Premier League because I know it better. Um, they have to split the money between all 18 teams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a little different in the Champions League where, you know, if you win the Champions League, you get the, mo- the most money, but everybody gets a piece of that Champions League pie, right? And what essentially these big clubs have realized is that their brand value is being diluted, number one, because everyone in uh, is tuning in in Nigeria to watch Man United play Juventus. They don't want to see Man United play a tiny team from Greece in the Champions League, right? <laughs> I, um, but that's necessary the way things are set up. And also, they have to share the money. So all that's happened is that these teams are like, why are we giving away so much of the money when we're the big draw? Um, the short-term trend that's been happening is the is COVID. And if you think about it, we've had a year without the fans, and the mm-hmm. sport has gone on and to a certain degree still thrived. And so it's a lot of people have been saying today, like, this is something that the teams have been thinking in the back of their heads for a while now, but COVID might have proved that it's via, uh, it's it's possible. It's a viable economic proposition that we divorce these teams to a certain degree from their local roots, right? Because it's kind of what you were saying about they are just brands unto themselves now. It it doesn't matter if they win against these smaller teams anymore. I mean, it helps your brand, but, (laughs) you know, but so so COVID has happened. And at the same time, uh, COVID has hurt a lot of teams. Like (laughs) Barcelona is in debt to uh, to the tune of a billion dollars. I think it's the same with Real Madrid, not to to that same degree. But like 
you know, for example, it is um, the the chairman of Real Madrid that is apparently the brainstorm behind all of this. And so there are certain teams, I think it was also um, Inter Milan might have taken a bailout from the Italian government recently or something like that. So there's certain teams that are right now looking around and being like, well, this would be a quick fix to solve our economic issues, get us out of debt. Because one of the things that, that that's already been packaged is like there's a guaranteed four and a half billion dollars or something that JP Morgan has put together that these teams can split. So like each team would be guaranteed, I think the number was like $400 million. So that takes a big chunk out of your $1 billion in debt if you can see that coming down the, the, the pike in a couple. Um, Notice also all the teams that are involved, a lot of them are owned by especially American billionaires, especially in mm. the cases of the English teams. Arsenal owned by Stan Kroenke, Liverpool owned by John Henry, uh, um, uh, who, uh, uh, Man United owned by the Glazers. So these are billionaire sports people, you know, the, the, like the 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 Cronkies and and the Henrys I think they they own you know American sporting teams too right so they're more used to this idea of not having relegation right, right. they're more used to if you own a team in the NBA you might own the suckiest team for 15 years but you're never going to be you're you're guaranteed a certain amount of money every year so it's it's sort of like protecting your investment and the Americans have been pushing for this for again decades um, because they just feel like it's a safer business environment. And then you use, you take the, the, the balance sheet part of the equation and you say, um, you know, we're bringing the most value here. So why aren't we getting more value out of it? Why do we have to share, you know, Liverpool is Liverpool and, 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 um, Everton play on opposite sides of a park in Liverpool from each other. Right. But Liverpool, you know, has turnover that's like five times the size of Everton, has a much bigger international standing. So, you know, Liverpool's looking across the park and being like, why are we sharing with Everton? <laughs> you know, we're the bigger draw here. Now, I'm, I'm pissing a lot of Everton people off. But um, so that is to say that what this is, is why people are upset about this is number one, it's sort of like the proposal is to rapture these big teams and sort of take them into this upper stratosphere that, and it's explicit in the, in, in the deal, we can never be kicked out of this. Now there are some sort of proposals that every year additional teams could be brought in if they performed well for, but, but these founding teams, the, the Liverpool, the Inter Milan, the, you know, they will never be kicked out of the super league. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like shutting, pulling up the, um, the drawbridge after you. Right. And right. the fear is that number one, they would have so much money, so much extra money, because this would be the premier event. It, it would definitely kill the, the Champions League. That all they would have all of the stars, right? So why are people afraid of that? Well, number one, if all of the stars are only playing in teams in the Super League, then it essentially devalues all of the other teams because you know that you're never going to get Lionel Messi on your team. He's only the equivalent of a Lionel Messi 10 years from now will only play for one of these teams because they'd be able to pay the most. They would have the biggest prestige, et cetera, et cetera. They are making the teams that are, that are forming the Super League or attempting to are making noises that doesn't mean they're going to leave their their. Um, national leagues right now that remains to be seen because that's what i was going to say some of them are trying to some of the leagues are trying to act against this and, and well we'll get to that but the, the i mean if you follow it logically to its conclusion they should just create this you know a super league and and uh 
and, and quit their local leagues. But even if they didn't, so like, we'll again use the English teams as an example. Well, they'd be getting so much more money, the guaranteed $400 million or something a year, um, that even if they stayed, even if uh, Arsenal stayed in the English Premier League, they'd be guaranteed to always have the best teams. And so they'd win the leagues every year, right? So that essentially it ruins every league. It ruins the fact that there's competitive leagues in all of these different countries. Now, to a certain degree, that's not true. You know, Bayern Munich tends to win every year in Germany. Uh, uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid trade off every year in Spain, although not this year. You know, uh, Atletico is going to win in uh, this year in Spain. Uh, Leicester, a team out of nowhere in, in, <laughs> in all sorts of ways, won the, the Premier League a few years ago. But essentially, I think the main fear is that, number one, it would relegate all of the national leagues to these sort of also rans where if if you really want to see real football played you're not going to watch you know Leicester versus Everton one time you know um but then number 2 i think people are are afraid that it does sort of thanos style suck up all the talent so that you know even whether this is you know outmoded or whatever to this day, you can be a tiny team from, from Greece, and one day Lionel Messi might have to come to your stadium and play your team because they're drawn together in the Champions League. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a superstar at, you know, Paul Pogba at Man United still has to, as the the hoary cliche goes, has to boot up his lace, lace up his boots for a rainy night game at Stoke sometimes, you know? So the idea that it's, it's sort of, what everyone's really pissed about is it's sort of like killing, it potentially could kill the game because it takes all of the talent to this rarefied realm where all of the other smaller fish would never really belong. But then, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here, I think that what ultimately people are starting to think about this is that in a larger sense, it's killing sport as sport. Because mm-hmm. if for these certain teams, there's never really anything at stake, then it's not sport, it's just exhibitions, right? And so if, if now look, you can't get relegated from the NFL, you can't get relegated from the NBA. So to a certain degree, that's not true. But like, if it's just a round robin of these dozen or so big teams, sure, one year maybe Tottenham win it, wins it in, and the next year maybe you know Barcelona wins it or whatever. But like any sort of sense that it's not just here's a dozen Harlem Globetrotter teams right. <laughs> that have been all assembled and they don't have to muck about with anybody else, like that takes away half of the excitement of sport, which is that you know the bigger teams always tend to win, but not every time, and in in good sports. Um, not even most of the time. It, so it takes away the sort of serendipity and the surprise, and we don't know what can happen on, on any given night. Any other team can beat any other team. And so I think the thing that people are objecting to the most is the idea that it's it's taking that out of sport just for purely financial greed reasons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that definitely meshes with the the fan response that I've seen so far. Um, can you cover just a little bit some of the backlash that we're seeing so far from the leagues, knowing that like it's moving pretty fast? So even by the time this goes out, well, there there's might be two things that it. by the time we hear this might have different news. One thing you got to watch out for is, and I, I'm, I'm going to say this before I get to what how it could potentially be blocked. One of the ways that I think this could go through is we're waiting for a shoe to drop. What if tomorrow the Super League teams announce, oh, yeah, by the way, Facebook or Amazon have already signed up and have guaranteed us $10 billion for five years if we set up this league? 
then that and that's possible. We all know that we live in a world where that's possible because they would get the exclusive you know rights to show the games and things like that. That's sort of we live in a world where that's possible and maybe even probable. And if that were to happen, I don't think that this can be derailed. Um, and that's part of why I think people are pissed is that they know that this is just sort of potentially a fait accompli that no one can stop. Um, right. How could they stop it? Well, you know, the Premier League uh, is a, has a vested interest in maintaining their money that they're raking in from their TV rights. Um, and there are rules set up in place that if any members of the Premier League enter any other competition that the Premier League does not approve, they can be kicked out of the Premier League. Which again, maybe logically, that's the end game anyway. But you could also UEFA could say right now um, you you're not going to be able to participate in any UEFA competitions, and that would include like the European Championships. FIFA could say any player that participates in this league that we have not sanctioned will not be able to participate in the World Cup. You will not be able to p- play for your national team. Um, they could uh, automatically right now deduct points from any of the teams. There has been discussion about that. There's apparently an emergency meeting going on right now. So right now, any of these teams, you could have Manchester City, who's about to walk away with the league. Well, what if the league says, as punishment, you six teams are each going to lose 30 points. We're going to deduct 30 points right now. Well, that would mean that all of those teams, by the way, that would mean Arsenal would be relegated. (laughs) Like that's something that could happen. Um, uh, now that's the to me the biggest wild card here is the players because the players are extremely wealthy and have quite a lot of power as the talent that everyone is essentially paying to see for uh, see see play but so what we have to wait and see is where the players fall in this if yeah it, if it, I'm really curious about players like agency in this exactly because, some huge repercussions that are falling on them potentially I mean, they're already making you know uh, uh, Lionel Messi's last contract was like. $250 million or something like that, but they're already making a lot of money. But what if the Lionel Messi of five years from now can be like, well, my contract could be half a billion dollars or more, right? If there's so much more money coming in, then there's a lot more money that can be divvied out to the players as well. It, the question would be how much, how much would, if I'm a young 22 year old phenom coming up and i want to be the next lionel messi i want to be considered the greatest player of my generation if i spend the the best years of my career essentially only playing you know 13 other teams over and over again and not trying myself against the whole breadth and width of of the football world well i feel like that that that's a real career that's mm-hmm. what I think this will depend on is if the players can be sold on, well, this is, this is the future of football. This is the way things are going to be going forward versus if they're convinced that this is some bastardization of, of football that would essentially render their achievements less valid. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, well, he's the Lionel Messi of the 2030s, but with an asterisk because unlike Lionel Messi who had to play against all of Europe, he only played against, you know, the same 15 teams over and over again. Right. Yeah. Um, that that remains to be seen and it, it you're right it is moving fast so i don't know yeah i i think we'll just have to watch for a lot of it um but thank you for sort of you know demystifying and you've brought in just how it it touches on so many other spheres and specter, uh, sectors of the world one question for you as an arsenal fan <laughs> like will this change you know if they if they stay in the super league and go forward with that will you still be an arsenal fan I thought about that this morning. I, on the one hand, I think every fan whose t- whose team was on this list was like breathed a sigh of relief because they're like, 
we haven't even spoken on like this is not based on merit at all arsenal has not won the league in uh 15 years they've won fa cups or whatever but there's no reason arsenal's gonna maybe finish ninth in the table this year so there's no reason on merit arsenal is gonna you know tottenham who is i should note arsenal's biggest rival has not won a trophy of any sort since the early sixties, not a single trophy, not a cup, not, a, you know, Arsenal's at least won FA cups in the last five years. But so this is not based on anything other than these are the biggest brands. I use the Liverpool versus Everton analogy. Like, you know, Everton was one of the best teams in England consistently for in the 1980s. They just haven't been for the last 30 years. Right. So if you're talking biggest teams, if it was true biggest teams, you would have to have an Everton in there. You'd have to have a Newcastle in there. It's not based on that. It's, a hundred percent based on what these global brands represent. And so one of the things that I think everyone else that's not a part of these superstar brand teams is, is suddenly feeling like, why is my team just because we didn't win this brand lottery, our team is not as valuable as your team. That sucks. But then if you're an Arsenal fan, like I wouldn't want this. Like I would, I would definitely consider like switching my allegiances to if they left the Premier League to a different Premier League team because I kind of like that competition better, right? But what the reason I think fans are so upset is that they know they're this is one hundred percent out of their control, that the mm-hmm. money is going to talk one way or the other, and maybe FIFA and UEFA will be powerful enough to to shoot this down, but it's not like like the the fans are just going to be an afterthought in this and think about the fact that the fans do know, like it has been sort of like the year without fans in the stands is what has proven to these really rich companies. You know, they're called clubs, but they're really companies that they don't need the fans showing up in the stadium. Really? All they really need to do is cut a bunch of sponsorship deals all around the globe. And that's how they make all their money. So the fans are feeling like our support of you is secondary. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, I think just, you know, the, the grossest thing to me is how much it does just appear to be all about the money. And I hadn't even thought until you brought it up, the idea that, you know, one network or company like, like an Amazon could just come in and, and seal the deal well, and also force should. all of us to get Amazon prime to watch the games. They should look at, you know, I, my, I, I cover tech all the time from the, uh, from the tech perspective, you know, this sort of content is, you know, Amazon spending half a billion dollars just to make a new Lord of the Rings. They could spend much, much less. They could spend $10 billion and have this, this content that we know sport is the one like non-scripted, um, reality content that's evergreen that that people will always pay for. If I were Amazon, if I were Apple, I would jump. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, yeah, I would definitely do that deal. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think that's you know important to bring up just for people who are not into sports either to understand like the gravity of this moment. Like this is a huge thing that is happening around the world right now. Yeah, and and what we also have to understand is that sport is one of the most important things culturally and financially in the world. Now you have movies, you have music and you essentially have sport. And those are the three media that, that essentially all of modern humans consume on a regular basis. And if you're in the media business, those are the three things that you can guarantee uh, to make money. You know, even social media platforms can come and go. News can come and go. But but like, yeah, sport it is one of the most valuable commodities, if not the most valuable commodity in the 20th century for, for a lot of major multinational companies. 
and it might be about to change in some big ways. So, wow. Well, thank you again for, for coming on and uh, sharing your, your expert knowledge here with us. Uh, uh, no problem, Jack. <laughs> All right, that is it for today. Thank you again to Brian for joining. Be sure to check out the Tech Meme Ride Home for more from Brian. He'll probably be covering the big Apple event tomorrow, so definitely a good time to tune in. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.